Welcome to the Empowering Healthy Business Podcast, the podcast for small business owners. Your host, Cal Wilder, has built and sold businesses of his own, and he has helped hundreds of other small businesses, whether it is improving sales, profitability, and cash flow, building a sustainable, scalable, and saleable business, reducing your stress level, achieving work-life balance, or improving physical and emotional fitness. Cal and his guests are here to help you run a healthier business and in turn, have a healthier life. Welcome, small business owners. Today, our conversation will focus around best practices for closing your books each month. Um, in a nutshell, this means completing all the bookkeeping and accounting activities for the month so that you are able to produce whatever level of financial reporting you need to manage your business. Joining me today is Lindsay Jarosh. Uh, after starting her career in public accounting at KPMG, Lindsay transitioned into private accounting for a number of years, including working as a controller. And then for the last five years, I have had the pleasure of working with Lindsay as she is now our director of cloud accounting at SparkBooks, where she is responsible, among other things, for client accounting operations for all of our clients, which includes ensuring a successful monthly close for over 100 small businesses every single month. So between Lindsay and me, we aim to help you understand what goes into doing a complete closing of the books on a monthly basis, including you know do's and don'ts that we have learned over the last 15 years or so of closing the books for hundreds of small businesses at SparkBooks. So uh, welcome, Lindsay. Thanks, Cal. Um, thanks for the opportunity to be on this podcast. It's a nice break from my day-to-day digging into financials and supporting our teams to close the books for all of our clients. Um, so. Great. We're recording this on uh, June 1st, so we are just uh, starting to heat up for the main monthly close right now, right? Yeah, um, and it's um, I'm super excited to take a break from it and share my intimate knowledge of the monthly closing process. So, yep, we're just getting started, beginning of a new month. All right. You know, so sometimes we start working with, uh, you know, new new clients and they're not used to closing the books formally. And so we sometimes have a discussion about why is it important to close the books? Um, so from your perspective, Lindsay, wh- why do we want to do a cl- an official closing of the books versus just, you know, coding transactions that come in from bank feeds? You know, if you're trying to run a business and make decisions, um, it's, it's really important to have accurate and timely financial statements and metrics. Um, and those can only be produced after a proper closing of the books. Right, right. And so the uh, the title of this podcast includes, you know, closing the books each month, every month, right? So why is it important to close the books every month instead of just doing it at the end of the year or maybe once a quarter when you get around to it? And, you know, are there businesses that don't really need to close the books every month? Um, well, it's so important to have the data on hand to make timely decisions and pivot as needed. Um, sometimes it's make it or break it decisions that have to happen real time. Um, for example... Do you have enough cash to make payroll in a few months or do you need to take out a loan? Um, is one revenue stream tanking? Are the margins shrinking? Are you, are you pricing your product properly? Um, do you have the right staffing mix? So like all of those things, you don't want to wait to make changes as needed as you're running your business. So it's so important to have that data sort of real time as we close the books every single month. Um there may be some businesses that don't need to do it every month. Maybe, you know, a small business or a business that has the same results month after month. Um, those, you know, maybe you could get away with doing it quarterly or even kind of doing an annual um, sort of cleanup and, and look at it. But for, for businesses that are growing um, or really have, you know, a lot of different things going on, it's, it's so important to have that data monthly um, to look at and make really educated decisions based on the financial data. I think we can probably all agree, you know, there's a need for the books to be accurate. Um, And generally, like you said, it's the best practice to close the books on a monthly basis. But let's talk a little bit more about timeliness and that timeline to close the books. Business owners want information as quickly as possible to understand how their business is performing but realistically, how long should it really take to close the books? 
You know, a lot of times there's competing priorities. Staff can't drop everything to focus 100% on the clothes. Um, it takes time to get bills from certain vendors. Um, maybe invoicing customers at month end takes a little bit of time. Um, small businesses often use fractional solutions like smart books um, that work to get the books closed for multiple clients. So realistically, you know, I think if you were to sit down and just focus 100% on closing the books, you could probably get it done in two to three days. Um, but really in practice, um, especially at smart books, we really try to get the books closed by the 15th or the 20th of the month. That gives us enough time to do our diligence, get all of the supporting documentation, and really do what we need to do to dig in and close the books accurately um, and get the books closed by the 15th or the 20th sometimes of the month. So I usually think in terms of uh, bottlenecks and critical paths to being able to get a process done, in this case, get the books closed so the financial reports can be run. Um, and so we want to let's dig in a little bit about the actual tasks that go into closing the books to make this a little bit more real um, for the audience. Um, so let's let's talk about, you know, the general progression of closing tasks and, you know, what's common to all businesses and then. You know, if there are different kinds of businesses that might have a more involved or complicated monthly close, you know, what drives that? What does that look like? Yeah, sure. So closing tax tasks are often interdependent, meaning some can't be completed until after another is completed. Um, and then sometimes there's changes to one task that may require revising a related task. So, for example, um, posting customer payments may need to be done before you reconcile a bank account. So often... When we're closing the books, we'll go through and make sure we've posted everything that we see coming through the bank statements, everything that we see coming through the credit card statements, which has to be done before we can reconcile the bank accounts or even look at the AR aging report. Um, sometimes we'll have to go back and you know, fix where we may have applied a customer payment. Um, and when we make those kind of revisions, then we may have to re-review the AR aging report. So there's definitely... Um, uh, a certain way that the tasks have to be done um, to make sure that we're capturing everything, especially, you know, when we start out, one of the first things that we really try to do is get all the bank statements and the credit card statements reconciled to make sure that we have everything in the books. Um, but if there's something missing or we do have to change something, sometimes we have to go back. So that's when you really see the concept of a critical path or maybe bottlenecks that we have to kind of wait for one thing to be done before we do another thing. Um, we can't move on to the next step in the closing process until the, the banks are reconciled, the credit cards are reconciled, and then we can, we can move on um, to, you know, the next steps. Also, you know, the customer invoicing process often um, takes, takes some time and some effort um, depending on how many invoices have to go out or the complexity of the invoicing. Um, there's some clients that we help with the invoicing process and there's hundreds of invoices that have to go out. So obviously before the, before we can close, all of the invoices have to be sent out to the customers, created and sent out um, before we can close for that month. So that sometimes is, is a bottleneck. Um, we're waiting for the invoices to go out before we can move on with the closing the books process. Um, and even posting vendor bills, you know, sometimes we're waiting for contractors to send in their bills um, so that we know how much we need to reconcile, recognize in the financials um, for that particular month. So we'll, you know, for, for some of them, we have to kind of bug when we know that we're really waiting for a big vendor to submit um, a bill. We may, you know, poke the client a little bit or, or even try to contact the vendor if need be to get that in. Um, but again, that's something that we we need to have in the books before we can continue um, to close the books. Um, some of the other sort of things that we see when we're reconciling accounts, um, you know, we're trying to post everything that we see come through the bank feed. There may be things that we don't know that we have to ask, um, you know, whoever is involved in closing the books. Um, so there's sometimes a certain number of uncategorized transactions that we'll have to resolve. Um, so before we can really you know, analyze the financial statements and look at the, the trends or run metrics, we'll have to 
um, figure out the uncategorized transactions by you know asking and really getting to the bottom of what those are. So so those are some of the things that we'll see um, that are really bottlenecks to, to closing the books and really some of those um, interdependent tasks that one thing has to be done before we can move on to the next thing. So if we're trying to get, if a business wants to get the books closed, you know, as fast as possible after the end of the month, it seems like some of these activities really need to start and mostly get done during the previous month before the end of the month. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there's no reason to wait until after the month is done to go through and, you know, make sure all the bank and credit card transactions are posted, right? Those can all be done, you know, during the previous month. And then anything that posts on the last day or two of the previous month, you can pick up after the end of the month. But it would seem like the, the, the bank and credit card reconciliation process should largely be a formality at the end of the month, unless I'm missing something. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the goal is always to mi- minimize the bottleneck. So many tasks can be completed ahead of time. Like you said, it's, it's really trying to remove anything in that short period of time after month end when you're trying to close the books and, and bring it or complete it earlier in the month if possible. Um, for example, like payroll can be posted um, every time a payroll is run. So on payday, we can post a payroll and that's not something that has to be done during, during month end. Um, also, you know, just posting the customer and vendor payments um, as they're made, um, keeping up with the bank and credit card registers and updating them weekly with new postings. Um, I mentioned the uncategorized transactions. So if there's anything unknown, we try to resolve them within the week um, that we see them coming through the bank or the credit card to, to really minimize that back and forth during the short close process. And that really can speed up the close process and resolve um, some of those bottlenecks ahead of time. We keep mentioning, you know, reconciling accounts, specifically bank and credit card accounts. Um, what does that really mean to reconcile a bank account? Yeah, so reconciling a bank account, some people, you know, especially when we get new clients, um, they think it really just means coding what we see come through the bank feed in QuickBooks. Um, but QuickBooks does sometimes omit things or there's duplicates for whatever reason. Um, so reconciling a bank account really means validating um, the balance on the in the general ledger in the financial statements and matching it to the bank statement um, we really do ensure that the GL uh, matches that bank statement sometimes there's a small timing difference if there's an outstanding check here or there but really um, the GL should match the bank statement um, there is a, a nice feature in QuickBooks that it's the reconcile feature, um, which produces a reconciliation report when done. Um, so that's something that we always look at when we're reviewing the books at the end of the month. We'll look and we'll double check that truly the balance in QuickBooks in the general ledger matches the bank statement. That's really like paramount to ensuring the financial statements are accurate. So. Um, using that reconciliation feature within QuickBooks helps a lot, um, but really doing kind of that check to make sure that everything truly reconciles the balance in QuickBooks matches the bank statement, um, puts us on the right track for closing the books accurately. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by SmartBooks. If you're struggling to get your weekly and monthly bookkeeping and accounting done, or not getting the financial reporting and performance insights you need to best manage your business, or have been surprised by unexpectedly large year-end tax bills, then SmartBooks may be the solution for you. To schedule a free consultation, visit SmartBooks.com and click the button right on the homepage. Over the past 15 years, SmartBooks has helped hundreds of small business owners. See if they can help you today. So it would seem like at a minimum, um, you know, every every small business who's trying to close the books to get financial reporting has to go through a few key steps. We'll talk about some of the more advanced uh, closing activities in a minute, but it would seem like at a minimum, you got to make sure, you know, all the customer invoices for the month are produced, all the vendor bills have been received and posted, um, 
we post a payroll. Uh, we'll get into making sure payroll gets posted accurately because that's uh, that's a challenge sometimes getting it posted accurately between wages and payroll taxes and employee deductions and and all the line items that go into payroll reports. Um, and then making sure we've uh, posted and reconciled every bank account and every credit card account and resolved uncategorized transactions. Right. And so if we can do all those things. Um, we've at least completed the first tier of the monthly close. Absolutely. Um, and so you know, that would cover uh, businesses that are generally operating on more or less a cash basis. You know, they may be recognizing revenue based on the date of invoices or expenses based on the date of bills, but they're not doing debits and credits accounting to accrue revenue or defer revenue or expenses. Um, they're not doing extensive balance sheet schedules. Uh, they're just doing a basic closing of the books. You know, if you can do that month after month with consistent procedures, they'll have good, consistent financial statements, you know, as a first tier to start using to make business decisions. Um, but uh, let's talk about businesses that have kind of made that leap more to full accrual accounting um, and what goes into their monthly close. And I know we're starting to throw around some terms here, but let's talk a little about what what does accrual accounting mean versus cash basis accounting? Yeah, sure. So accrual accounting um, is really used to um, tell a story about your financials. Cash basis is when you're really recognizing um, revenue and expenses based on when cash is received or sent out. So you'll see that the timing of recognizing those expenses in the financials is really based on the cash activity um, of payments and receipts. Um, accrual accounting is um, when revenue is recognized, when goods and services are provided, um, and then expenses are recognized when they're incurred. So the timing changes a little bit. It doesn't matter when cash goes out the door. If a vendor you know, provides you that service within the month of May, then you're going to recognize that expense in the month of May, regardless of if you pay it in June. Um, it doesn't matter when the cash exchange hands, it matters when um, when the activity actually happened. Um, same thing with revenue, it's recognized when the goods or services are provided, regardless of when the customer pays their invoice. So even if they prepay it or pay it in the month after, it's the service, if the services were provided in May, then that revenue was recognized in May. Um, so when a company makes the leap to accrual accounting, um, there's a little bit more to do to close the books. So Cal mentioned, you know, at first we may reconcile the bank accounts and make sure we have all the vendor bills and all the invoices are sent out. But when a company decides to um, apply the concept of accrual accounting, we have sort of a tier two approach where we do more to close the book. So we start looking at kind of the timing of expenses and there may be some prepaid expenses that we need to recognize. So we look to identify those new prepaid expenses. For example, an insurance policy, somebody, a company may pay, you know, $10,000 in the month of May for an insurance policy for the next year. So that's prepaying that insurance policy for the next year. And we don't want to just post that $10,000 all in May. Um, we want to post it equally over the next year. So we'll recognize it as a prepaid expense on the balance sheet and we'll track that throughout the year and recognize the expense, like one twelfth of the expense every month for the next 12 months. Um, the same thing goes for accrued expenses. If maybe a legal service was provided in the month of May, um, even if we have not received that bill, we know that service was provided and we need to recognize an expense for that. Um, so that would be an accrued expense. And often those are um, known expenses that, you know, we see coming that the client knows, oh, hey, you know, I have, you know, a legal bill for $5,000 coming. We haven't received it, but we do need to recognize that in the right month. The services were provided. Again, it doesn't matter when the cash changes hands. Um, you know, the expense was incurred in that month. So um, a little bit more complex than just cash basis, but definitely paints a better picture when you're looking at the overall financials to really see what expenses relate to that particular month and what revenue relates to that particular month. So you can begin looking um, at trends that make sense. 
Um, another thing that we look at is payroll. Um, sometimes payroll needs to be accrued into the month. So maybe um, employees don't get paid until the next month, but if they worked and incurred a payroll cost in that month, um, sometimes there's certain days that we have to accrue back. Like maybe there's three days in May that won't be that will be paid in part of the payroll at the beginning of June, um, but we need to recognize that payroll expense in the right month. So we'll kind of prorate the payroll and make sure that that expense is being recognized properly in May by booking a journal entry um, at month end. Another thing, right? Because we because we run into situations where we're trying to close the books on a monthly basis, but many companies will have payroll on a biweekly or weekly basis. So payroll is every two weeks or sometimes every single week. And so although you can say there's four weeks in a month, four weeks is really 28 days and most months have 30 or 31 days. And so you've got that extra two or three days of expense. And so if we don't go to the um, go to the trouble of doing payroll accruals, then we'll have a couple months out of the year where we might have three paydays instead of two paydays if it's a biweekly payroll. And then your expenses look really out of whack uh, those two months, and it's really hard to do co good comparative um, analysis if you've got some months with three paydays and some months with two days. And so to really try to make the the expenses be reported accurately on a monthly basis. We got to smooth that out. So we're recognizing 30 to 31 days of, of payroll expense every month, not 28 days in, in some months and, uh, you know, uh, three or five paydays in other months. Yeah. Um, and so, and again, you know, we do that. It's accrual accounting is really to paint a more accurate reflection of business performance. So we're really just trying to align the costs um, to the right months. Same thing with the revenue. Um, other things that we look for are, or try to book are depreciation expense um, to depreciate, you know, generally on a straight line basis and fixed assets or capital purchases. Um, also, a lot of times we'll approve interest if there's debt on the books. Um, and again, regardless of when that's paid, we still need to incur the interest expense in the right month. Um, so those are, those are some of the other things that we do when we're preparing um, financial statements and really closing the books on a monthly basis for an accrual basis client. Okay. And so I think we're kind, of, we're kind of seeing how these bottlenecks compound and can build on each other, right? Because if we're trying to identify prepaid expenses, then we have to know what bills have been received or paid in the month first so that we can then review them and identify which ones might have been for future benefits that need to get um, capitalized as a prepaid expense and then recognized over time in the future. Uh, and so... That, you know, it just kind of builds on itself. And so returning to this concept of the critical path and bottlenecks, I'll put a plug in for a particular book recommendation called, the book is called The Goal by Eli Goldratt, which is an incredibly great book. It's relatively quick and easy to read, but it's all about understanding bottlenecks and the critical path, which is that sequential um, series of bottlenecks from start to finish where any one of those steps, if delayed, will delay the whole process. And so there are certain things that are going to be critical path bottlenecks that have to get done in order to close the books. And then there may be some other things that need to get done, but, you know, they might not be as time critical. So if we're trying to go through the close process for an accrual basis business um, where we have prepaid expenses, you know, making sure all the vendor bills have been posted is part of the critical path, because until we do that, we cannot um, account for any prepaid expenses. At the same time, if, you know, say payroll is paid semi-monthly or monthly, so there's no need to do a payroll accrual, you know, we know we need to get the payroll account, the payroll booked on uh, account for payroll for the month. But whether we do that on the last day of the month or the second day of the following month or the, you know, eighth day of the following month, you know, if we're trying to get the books closed by the 10th or the 15th, doesn't really matter too much, you know, which particular day we post payroll, because um, we could post it on the 5th or we could post it on the 1st, you know, as long as we get it posted a few days before we need to, com you know, complete the close, it's going to be fine. Whereas if we waited until, 
you know, the 10th day to, you know, post all of our bills. Now we're up against the wall and we have no time to do a review and accounting for prepaid expenses. So really trying to identify and think strategically about each of the steps that go into the monthly close process, which ones are dependent upon earlier steps and kind of mapping out that critical path. It is really important if we're trying to get the books closed on a timely basis as fast as possible. Yeah. I mean, to that point, I remember a client they had, you don't see it as much anymore because everything's electronic, but I remember a client that had a whole stack of bills sitting on their desk and they were like, you know, can you just close the books for me? Like, let's jump on close. And I was like, well, I need that stack of bills right there on your desk before I could do it. So definitely um, shows kind of that critical path and where bottlenecks can arise. Right. So after we've gone through the process of, uh, you know, closing the books and we think they're closed, um, there's a, this whole quality assurance and quality control stage. Um, and if you're a business that only has, you know, one bookkeeper or staff accountant, you may be in, you know, a bit of a bind because it's hard, you know, to do a quality control when there's only one person who both is, you know, doing the work and then quality controlling the work. So there's bit of a uh, control or shortcoming there in the what you can possibly do to quality control the work if there's only one person involved in the process. But the best practice is to have you know, some separation of duties, um, some review and quality control before we say the books are officially closed and we can start to rely on the financial reporting to make decisions. So Lindsay, could you talk Talk us through some of the components of good uh, quality control as part of the monthly close. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I manage the monthly close process for the teams at SmartBooks, and I really um, value the concept of trust but verify. Um, really having a preparer and a reviewer, two sets of eyes, ensures consistency and accuracy. Um, so the first thing that we generally have our team do is a self-review. They'll go through kind of the checklist, the monthly close checklist that we have in place um, and really review to make sure everything's complete. Um, everything has been done step by step. You know, all the reconciliations still reconcile. All of the balance sheet accounts are supported. Um, the income statement has been reviewed for trends or um, you know, nothing's missing. And so they'll do a self-review. Um, and if anything arises or questions come up, you know, they'll take, take care of that before it goes to the next stage. Um, the next stage in the QA process is a manager review. Um, and the manager goes through the same process, really reviewing all of the steps of close from, you know, the top of the balance sheet to the bottom and then going over to the P&L and looking at, like I said, trends or anything that's missing or looks unusual um, you know, things that look out of place um, or anything like that. Um, and so once that's done and once kind of all the steps of close are retraced, there's a preliminary review of the financial statements um, and other reports for, for reasonableness. Again, just walking through the P&L, really looking at trends, margins, um, ensuring everything looks reasonable and there's nothing that kind of jumps out as far as, um things that look out of the ordinary. Um, and then we move forward um, and we say, okay, we run the financial statements, um, which we can talk about. And then we move forward and we close the books in QuickBooks. QuickBooks has a close date that you can enter in where no changes can be made after that. Um, and that's really important because you don't want anyone making changes to um, the financial statements after they're closed and verified um, and accurate um, from there. During that QA stage, I think it naturally leads into preparing and explaining the financial reports because you can, you know, you can go through the whole accounting close process, say the books are closed, and then click some buttons to generate the basic financial statements and send them out to the owner and say, here's, here's the financial statements for the month and year to date. But that's not particularly useful. Uh, it's better than nothing for sure. But when you're doing that QA and you see things that look a little bit out of the ordinary, you're making notes, you're going back and verifying there wasn't actually a mistake, um, saying, you know, why was, you know, the legal expense so high this month or something went on with rent and occupancy expense. Maybe we got an annual um, common area maintenance bill that comes in once a year that happened to hit that month that we hadn't accrued for. Um, so you can kind of take notes about anything that looks a little bit out of the ordinary outside the trend line 
in the revenue and expense sections of the financial statements and the income statement. And then uh, you can kind of present a summary of the key variances along with the financial statements to help the business owner and the executive team understand what happened, right? Yeah, I mean, the QA process is an excellent time to really kind of understand what's going on. Um, a lot of times there's a lot of back and forth. You know, if I do a review, um, whoever the accountant is that closed the books sometimes has to go back and ask a lot of questions or really dig into um, kind of the details of, of a certain transaction if it was material to the financials or really did cause any type of differences in, when looking at trends and things like that. So it gives us a huge opportunity to really understand um, what's going on and tell that story um, and is very helpful when we do present the financial statements at the end of the month to be able to um, have that narrative and explain kind of some of the trends and really what went on in the business. Yeah, I completely agree, Lindsay. The financial statements tell a story um, and in order to really define that story, we've got to look at all three of the main financial statements, which are the, the income statement, a.k.a. profit and loss, P&L, which is the one that most people pay attention to um, and look at. Um, and then there's the balance sheet, which is the list of assets and liabilities and, and net worth of the business. And then there's the cash flow statement that kind of reconciles the income statement against actual changes of cash in the bank. And that last statement, the cash flow statement, is the most challenging to look at and digest and understand and explain. But it's the key to help the business owner understand what's really driving changes in cash. Because the P&L could look great. You could have a, you know, a $50,000 monthly profit on the income statement and think life is good. But you could look at your bank balance and it might have gone down $75,000 in the month. And you're like, what happened? My P&L says I made $50,000, but my bank statement says I lost $75,000. What happened? And so sometimes um, we'll hear, well, just run the income statement on a cash basis because that's going to be more accurate. It's going to show me, you know, um, why my cash changed, what caused my cash to change. And that's not really true because the income statement only includes uh, items of revenue and expense. It does not include, you know, things like borrowing or repaying loans, owner contributions of capital, or hopefully larger distributions of capital when you distribute profits out of business. So the cash flow statement, you know, starts at the top with the reported net profit from the income statement, the P&L, and then it looks at the different accounts on the balance sheet that actually contributed or consumed cash and lets you understand what really caused the bottom line change of cash in the bank. And so it's important, um, you know, that you have your bookkeeper or accountant really tell you the story about what's going on with all three of your financial statements, not just uh, not just the income statement. Yeah, that's. Spot on. I mean, the cash flow statement really paints a picture as to how the company's operations are running, where the money comes from, how the money is being spent. Um, and that's why when we send the financial statements um, to the owner of the company, we do like to you know, tell that story and have that narrative as to really what's going on with the business. So... You know, we've been going at this about a half hour and we've been talking mostly about what goes into closing the books. So there's obviously a lot that goes into closing the books and uh, we could certainly talk for another half hour if we wanted to and we'll keep going on some other important topics. But uh, it's clear that, you know, having a, an, a real system of being organized is key to being able to, you know, accurately and consistently and efficiently and timely close the books each month. And so you mentioned it in passing a little bit, the idea of a closing checklist. Um, and I think I, I can't emphasize enough the importance of a closing checklist. Um, that I'll put in another, a plug for another book called The Checklist Manifesto, which is written by a surgeon, I think maybe even a neurosurgeon, brain, brain surgeon. Um, and it was a study of the use of checklists in operating rooms and some other um, industries where folks are generally pretty smart and you think, I'm a brain surgeon, I probably don't need a checklist to tell me to wash my hands and put on my gown and all these other basic things before I cut into somebody's brain. But um, 
they found that implementing basic checklists so that a consistent process was followed prior to surgery dramatically reduced rates of um, infections and complications and preventable um, you know, preventable problems that result from surgery. And so I view it as um, accountants are pretty smart, but brain surgeons are probably smarter on average. And if uh, a basic checklist can help brain surgeons be more effective in their job, then it ought to really help accountants and other folks who have to follow standardized processes be that much more effective in their jobs as well. And so we will put a sample closing checklist, uh, link to a sample closing checklist in the show notes that you can download. So you get a sense for, you know, here's what a closing checklist looks like. You could modify it for your own business. You can implement it. You could have your accountant present it uh, to you along with the financial statements on a monthly basis. So even if you are dependent upon only one person doing your accounting, you can at least have a little bit of a check and balance on what they're doing if you're reviewing the checklist, making sure there's a checklist in place and reviewing the checklist um, as part of the reviewing the financial statement process on a monthly basis. Yeah, I mean, uh, checklists support the methodical nature of closing the books, so um, it, it is helpful. We use checklists here at SmartBooks, and it's very helpful to be able to see where in the close process you are um, at any point in time as well to make sure everything's getting done. So we've talked a lot about kind of the do's, the things that we should be doing as part of the monthly close. Um, what are some of the pitfalls you've seen uh, with closing the books or taking on, you know, a new small business where you and your SmartBooks team have come in to, you know, take over doing the first monthly close and you've inherited some things. So, you know, what are some of the pitfalls and issues you've seen with closing the books that folks should be aware of and, and try to avoid doing? Um, so we've talked about it a lot, but the importance of bank reconciliations and oftentimes when we, you know, just jump into a set of financials for a new client, we'll see that the bank or the credit card um, are not properly reconciled. There's unclear transactions that somehow got into the books or things got double posted um, where the bank does not even remotely agree sometimes to um, the, the bank statement. So that's the first one and, and the one that we try to correct um, right away. It can't stress the importance of reconciling the banks and credit cards. Um, often we'll also see other things that just haven't been coded or haven't been coded properly. Um, so there's things just sitting in un like an uncategorized account. QuickBooks has sort of a canned account called the Ask My Accountant. So we'll see things just sort of sitting, hanging out there, which aren't helpful because then you can't see where they really belong. You can't compare trends and expenses. Um, so we'll try to rectify anything that's uncategorized or really blatantly in the wrong spot, um, whether it's you know, negative items in the assets or liabilities, you know, we'll, we'll really hone in on things that are clearly categorized incorrectly. Um, a lot of times we'll see issues in posting payroll. Payroll is a little bit tricky. Um, sometimes, you know, clients will just post the net amount that they see coming out of their bank account. Um, but it's really important when posting payroll that the wages be posted to a wage account um, and the employer taxes be reconciled as an expense because that truly is an expense to the company, along with contributions for benefits um, or employer funding um, of liabilities. So there's lots of lots of issues with payroll often that we see when we you know, just start doing the bookkeeping and accounting for a new client. Um, also, as far as invoicing goes, sometimes the customer invoice dates are incorrect, um, prompting revenue recognition to be incorrect. Um, so really getting the revenue in the right period or at least dating the invoices in the right period um, is, is super important. And that goes along with vendor bills too um, for expense recognition, really getting it getting the dates on the bills correct so that they're recognized in the right period. Um, and then there's like capitalization thresholds that we look for, like putting fixed assets on the books. Um, often, you know, if a company spend, you know, say a company buys a new building, um, we don't want that building to be expensed on the P&L all at once. We'll put it into fixed assets um, so that we can depreciate it. Uh, that goes along with, you know, we talked about prepaid expenses earlier in the in the um, podcast, and it's so important to make sure that they're 
you know, properly capitalized if needed. A lot of times we'll use some kind of a threshold. So if it's over a certain amount, um, defined amount that we established to be consistent, a lot of times we'll do $2,000 or sometimes $5,000. Anything over that amount needs to be capitalized, meaning it needs to go on the balance sheet and expensed in the correct time period instead of being expensed right in that current month. Um, the other thing that we look for are, you know, that we look at the chart of accounts. Sometimes, um, things are posted in the parent account. So the header account, which, um, is kind of a pet peeve, but it drives me a little bit crazy. It really should be, um, put into kind of a child account, one of the sub accounts of the parent account so that you can really see what that expense relates to, um, And then sometimes there's very obvious things when you're looking at the income statement, like rent, you'll see rent January, February, and March, but there'll be no rent in May, and then maybe some rent in June, and a a big rent expense in July. So really just figuring out, like, well, where did rent get posted in the missing month? Um, Things like that, like really making sure that all the expenses are being correctly recorded in every month to to consistent GL accounts. So that's just some of them. We see, we see all kinds of things, but um, those are those are probably the biggest offenders that we see when we're um, trying to close the books, especially for a client just coming in that really hasn't had a consistent, um, accurate closing process previously. You mentioned some, sometimes some challenges around uh, the dating of customer invoices for your own customers for revenue or the dating of vendor bills that you receive for expense recognition. Um, And so um, a general practice that I've recommended, kind of developed and recommended over the years is what I call management accrual. You're not going to see it in any college accounting textbooks uh, as an official accounting standard, but It's this intermediate step that gets you, you know, 80% of the way toward gap, and we'll have to define gap in a minute, but gets you kind of 80% of the way toward really good, clean, 100% accurate accrual accounting. It gets, you know, 80 plus percent of the way there without having to do a lot more work than standard cash basis accounting. And a couple of the keys there are um, dating your customer invoices in the same month in which you delivered the goods and services. So if you did a bunch of work for a customer in May and you bill in arrears at the end, after the end of the month, so you actually send the invoices out to your customers in early June, date those invoices May 31st. So that'll put all of your May um, efforts um, into revenue in the month of May. And then if you have subcontractors or other service provider vendors who provided services or goods to you during the month of May, have them date their invoices to you May 31st. Or say they date it on June 2nd and you get it on June 2nd. You can simply date the invoice in QuickBooks on May 31st and you're off by a couple days technically versus what's printed on the invoice, but it just doesn't matter. And it's a lot easier having the customer invoice or the vendor bill just dated in the right month than having to open up a spreadsheet and do a balance sheet schedule and worry about accruals and reversals and quality controlling a spreadsheet and human errors in the spreadsheet. We just date the invoices and the bills in the same month in which goods and services are delivered. That gets you almost all the way. Yes, there's some finer points and it's not 100% gap, but it gets you pretty darn close. And uh, if you can have your people paid semi-monthly instead of every two weeks, You don't have to worry about any payroll accruals or any three payday or five payday months. It just recognizes one month's worth of payroll cost based on the natural payroll frequency. So there are a few things like that that get you most of the way toward good, clean accrual basis accounting books without having to do a whole lot of accounting work. Um, So I mentioned GAP. What does that stand for? What does that mean, Lindsay? And is it really how relevant is that to small businesses? Sure. So um, GAP stands for Generally Accepted Accounting Principles, and it's really a framework of rules on how you should uh, appropriately and properly account for all of your transactions. Um, It's relevant to small businesses when an audit is needed or, um, you know, maybe the business is rapidly growing and you're looking to sell um, or or truly grow into potentially a public company at some point in time. But often for small businesses, um, 
using the gap framework for every single transaction is is cost prohibitive and just really not necessary um cal described the concept of management accrual where where you know dating the vendor bills and the month services are delivered um capitalizing large purchases over say a threshold of five thousand dollars things like that um it, it really makes it a lot easier for small businesses and really takes so much less time um to kind of take some of those those shortcuts even for a very small business on a cash basis which isn't isn't gap gap really follows the accrual standards um but some sometimes it's just not um not needed. Uh, you can get a good picture of your business without following every single, you know, to the T um, rule that that Gap outlines. So, um, you know, using the management accrual methodology gets you there, allows you to make decisions as needed, and really doesn't take all the time and effort needed to really apply Gap in every single instance. And you'll still get um, fantastic financials that will allow you to run and grow your business or um, really do whatever whatever it is that um, is the kind of ultimate objective for your business without really spending the time and money to to follow gap in in every sense yeah my perspective on gap and unless it's required by outside investors or lenders or there's an anticipated uh, exit event that's going to require a full gap audit anytime soon in the next few years. I would much rather my team at SmartBooks put their marginal extra time into analyzing and helping clients plan and manage their the financial side of their business um, and help them make business decisions that improve profitability and increase ultimately the value of their business. I'd much rather we put our marginal time into those activities than fine tuning, you know, gap financial statements um, in the past, right? When we're accountants, we we tend to report what happened in the past. And you get to a certain point where there's diminishing returns of trying to, you know, report slightly more accurately according to gap principles what happened in the past. I'd much rather we start to help plan and predict the future, um, which will help business owners manage the business a lot more effectively than you know, trying to go from 90% accurate to 99% accurate if it involves doubling the accounting cost. Um, one, one other thing I wanted to ask you more specifically about, Lindsay, is payroll accounting. I know uh, it can be challenging. A lot goes into payroll accounting. Often you're posting it by journal entry with debits and credits and having to keep that straight. And if the uh, wages are reported on the income statement um, that goes on to the tax return, don't match the payroll tax returns. If the income tax return wage amount doesn't match the payroll tax return wage amount, it can be a red flag. It's certainly something that the tax preparer is going to ask about to try to fix it after the end of the year. So can you explain a little bit more what goes into proper payroll accounting and, and what you need to be aware of? Sure. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, often we see, you know, when we take on a new client, the previous bookkeeper or whoever was doing the, the bookkeeping posts the payroll just as, you know, a payroll expense with whatever they see coming out of the bank, which um, come tax time um, is really not, <laughs> not going to work. Um, so what we really look for is posting gross wages um, as an expense. So that's Number one, that's an expense to the company. Gross wages need to be posted as a payroll expense. Then we'll look at taxes. So on a payroll report, you'll see the employee taxes, the taxes that the employee pays, and the employer taxes. Um, and what we're really after is the employer tax expense. That's the expense to the company that needs to be recorded in the financials. So we'll we'll find sometimes it's a little bit tricky. Sometimes you have to run different reports to really get that separation between employee versus employer tax expense. Um, but we'll find that employer tax number and post that as an expense. And then we'll look at some of the other things. So sometimes, you know, certain benefits, there's contributions from the employee that needs to go against the premiums that the company pays. So those will often be recorded as, um, 
to the expense account as sort of an offsetting expense to the premium that's ultimately paid by the company. So we'll look for some of the, the benefit expenses that maybe need to be posted a little bit differently. Um, some of the other expenses that maybe are expenses to the company are um, for retirement accounts. So there's often like a 401k match that will need to be recorded as an expense. Um, and sometimes those are not paid by the payroll company. Um, they're paid separately by um, the company to the, the 401k company. So often we'll have to book the liability for those because they'll be paid at some point um, in the future. So there is a lot of complexity that goes into properly posting a payroll um, when it when it comes through. A lot more complicated than just posting kind of the net amount that comes out of the bank. Um, and we'll verify this by doing a quarterly payroll reconciliation. So every quarter we'll um, pull down either the wage register or the quarterly um, payroll tax filings and we'll tie the wages and the taxes to whatever is in QuickBooks to ensure that, you know, nothing was missed, no payrolls were missed, everything's in there, and it really ties out. Um, and then at the end of the year, we provide the quarterly payroll reconciliations to the tax accountant, which is extremely helpful in ensuring that nothing was missed and all of the payroll um, items are properly recorded in the financial statements. So, Lindsay, if we recap this discussion uh, in a few bullet points, um, I think we've established the monthly close as a very methodical, structured process. A lot can go into it depending on how far down the path of accrual accounting the business needs to go. Um, you know, it is possible to kind of do it yourself to a certain extent, especially with, you know, written standard operating procedures and closing checklists. Um, but at some point, it's going to need to be managed by a professional accountant who can determine the right accounting policies and how to implement them with an eye toward being able to produce reporting that is valuable to the business. Um, and I guess ultimately, as a small business owner trying to assess um, you know, how well their monthly close is working and how much confidence they should have in it, do they need to upgrade it? I think ultimately the question is whether the business owner is confident that they're getting accurate and timely reporting that they can use to help manage the business. Um, so Lindsay, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to put together this episode with me. I know we'll be doing future episodes on other topics related to small business accounting. And I know we've uh, we provided definitely some takeaway value for listeners um, to help assess and upgrade what goes into their monthly close. And we've got a, a sample monthly closing checklist template that's available for download that we link to that in the show notes. Um, and so listeners, if you'd like to follow up with Lindsay and me and our team at SmartBooks here to explore how SmartBooks might be able to help you with your business on its own monthly close and financial reporting needs or any other bookkeeping and accounting and reporting needs, please visit us at SmartBooks.com. Right on the homepage, there's a link to schedule a free consultation with us. Reference show notes and find other episodes on EmpoweringHealthyBusiness.com. If you would like to have a one-on-one -on -one discussion with me or possibly engage SmartBooks to help with your business, you can reach me at cal, C-A-L, at empoweringhealthybusiness.com or message me on LinkedIn where I am easy to find. Until next time, this is Empowering Healthy Business, the podcast for small business owners, signing off.